Chapter Five of the Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: How the Brigadier Took the Field Against the Marshal Millefleur. Massena was a thin, sour little fellow, and after his hunting accident, he had only one eye. But when it looked out from under his cocked hat, there was not much upon a field of battle which escaped it. He could stand in front of a battalion and with a single sweep tell you if a buckle or a gaiter button were out of place. Neither the officers nor the men were very fond of him, for he was, as you know, a miser, and soldiers love their leaders should be free-handed. At the same time, when it came to work, they had a very high respect for him, and they would rather fight under him than anyone else except the emperor himself, and Lan, when he was alive. After all, if he had a tight grasp upon his money-bags, there was a day also, you must remember, when that same grip was upon Zurich and Genoa. He clutched on to his positions as he did to his strong-box, and it took a very clever man to loosen him from either. When I received his summons I went gladly to his headquarters, for I was always a great favourite of his, and there was no officer of whom he thought more highly. That was the best of serving with those good old generals, that they knew enough to be able to pick out a fine soldier when they saw one. He was seated alone in his tent, with his chin upon his hand, and his brow as wrinkled as if he had been asked for a subscription. He smiled, however, when he saw me before him. "'Good day, Colonel Gerard.' "'Good day, Marshal. How is the third of Hussars?' Seven hundred incomparable men upon seven hundred excellent horses.' "'And your wounds? Are they healed?' "'My wounds never heal, Marshal,' I answered. "'And why? Because I always have new ones.' "'General Rapp must look to his laurels,' said he, his face all breaking into wrinkles as he laughed. "'He has had twenty-one from the enemy's bullets, and as many from Larry's knives and probes. Knowing that you were hurt, Colonel, I have spared you of late, which hurt me most of all. Tut, tut!' Since the English got behind these accursed lines of Torre Vedras, there has been little for us to do. You did not miss much during your imprisonment at Dartmoor, but now we are on the eve of action. We advance? No, retire. My face must have shown my dismay. What? Retire before this sacred dog of a Wellington, he who had listened unmoved to my words and had sent me to his land of fogs? I could have sobbed as I've thought of it. What would you have? cried Massena impatiently. When one is in check, it is necessary to move the king. Forwards, I suggested. He shook his grizzled head. The lines are not to be forced, said he. I have already lost General St. Croix and more men than I can replace. On the other hand, we have been here at saint for nearly six months. There is not a pound of flour nor a jug of wine on the countryside. We must retire. There are flour and wine in Lisbon, I persisted. Tut, you speak as if an army could charge in and charge out again like your regiment of hussars. If Sol were here with thirty thousand men, but he will not come. I sent for you, however, Colonel Gerard, to say that I have a very singular and important expedition which I intend to place under your direction. I pricked up my ears, as you can imagine, 
the marshal unrolled a great map of the country and spread it upon the table. He flattened it out with his little hairy hands. This is Santorem, he said, pointing. I nodded. And here, twenty-five miles to the east, is Almaxal, celebrated for its vintages and for its enormous abbey. Again I nodded. I could not think what was coming. Have you heard of the Marshal Millefleur? asked Massina. I have served with all the marshals, said I, but there is none of that name. It is but a nickname which the soldiers have given him, said Massina. If you had not been away from us for some months, it would not be necessary for me to tell you about him. He is an Englishman, and a man of good breeding. It is on account of his manners that they have given him his title. I wish you to go to this polite Englishman at Almaxal. Yes, Marshal and to hang him to the nearest tree. Certainly, Marshal. I turned briskly upon my heels, but Massina recalled me before I could reach the opening of his tent. One moment, Colonel, said he. You had best learn how matters stand before you start. You must know, then, that this Marshal Millefleur, whose real name is Alexis Morgan, is a man of very great ingenuity and bravery. He was an officer in the English guards, but having been broken for cheating at cards, he left the army. In some manner he gathered a number of English deserters round him and took to the mountains. French stragglers and Portuguese brigands joined him, and he found himself at the head of five hundred men. With these he took possession of the abbey of Almaxal, sent the monks about their business, fortified the place, and gathered in the plunder of all the country round for which it is high time he was hanged, said I, making once more for the door. One instant, cried the marshal, smiling at my impatience. The worst remains behind. Only last week the dowager countess of Loranda, the richest woman in Spain, was taken by these ruffians in the passes, as she was journeying from King Joseph's court to visit her grandson. She is now a prisoner in the abbey, and is only protected by her grandmotherhood, I suggested. Her power of paying a ransom, said Messina. You have three missions, then, to rescue this unfortunate lady, to punish this villain, and, if possible, to break up this nest of brigands. It will be a proof of the confidence which I have in you, when I say that I can only spare you half a squadron with which to accomplish all this. My word, I could hardly believe my ears. I thought that I should have had my regiment at the least. I would give you more, said he, but I commence my retreat today, and Wellington is so strong in horse that every trooper becomes of importance. I cannot spare you another man. You will see what you can do, and you will report yourself to me at a brant not later than to-morrow night. It was very complimentary that he should rate my power so high, but it was also a little embarrassing. I was to rescue an old lady, to hang an Englishman, and to break up a band of five hundred assassins, all with fifty men. But, after all, the fifty men were hussars of Conflans, and they had an Etienne Gerard to lead them. As I came out into the warm Portuguese sunshine, my confidence had returned to me, and I had already begun to wonder whether the medal with which I had so often deserved 
might not be waiting for me at Almaxal. You may be sure that I did not take my fifty men at haphazard. They were all old soldiers of the German wars, some of them with three stripes and most of them with two. Uday and Papillette, two of the best sub-officers in the regiment, were at their head. When I had them formed up in fours, all in silver-gray and upon chestnut horses, with their leopard-skin shabracks and their little red panaches, my heart beat high at the sight. I could not look at their weather-stained faces with the great moustaches which bristled over their chin-straps without feeling a glow of confidence, and between ourselves I have no doubt that that was exactly how they felt when they saw their young colonel on his great black war-horse riding at their head. Well, when we got free of the camp and over the Tagus, I threw out my advance and my flankers, keeping my own place at the head of the main body. Looking back from the hills above Santarem, we could see the dark lines of Messina's army, with a flash and twinkle of the sabres and bayonets, as he moved his regiments into position for the retreat. To the south lay the scattered red patches of the English outposts, and behind the grey smoke-cloud which rose from Wellington's camp, thick oily smoke which seemed to our poor starving fellows to bear with it the rich smell of seething camp kettles. Away to the west lay a curve of blue sea, flecked with the white sails of the English ships. You will understand that as we were riding to the east our road lay away from both armies. Our own marauders, however, and the scouting parties of the English, covered the country, and it was necessary with my small troop that I should take every precaution. During the whole day we rode over desolate hillsides, the lower portions covered by the budding vines, but the upper turning from green to grey, and jagged along the skyline like the back of a starved horse. Mountain streams crossed our path, running west to the Tagus, and once we came to a deep, strong river, which might have checked us had I not found the ford by observing where houses had been built opposite each other, upon either bank. Between them, as every scout should know, you will find your ford. There was none to give us information, for neither man nor beast nor any living thing, except great clouds of crows, was to be seen during our journey. The sun was beginning to sink when we came to a valley clear in the centre, but shrouded by huge oak trees upon either side. We could not be more than a few miles from Almaxal, so it seemed to me to be best to keep among the groves, for the spring had been an early one, and the leaves were already thick enough to conceal us. We were riding then in open order among the great trunks, when one of my flankers came galloping up. "'There are English across the valley, Colonel,' he cried as he saluted. "'Cavalry or infantry?' "'Dragoons, Colonel,' said he. "'I saw the gleam of their helmets and heard the neigh of a horse.' Halting my men, I hastened to the edge of the wood. There could be no doubt about it. A party of English cavalry was travelling in a line with us, and in the same direction. I caught a glimpse of their red coats, and of their flashing arms glowing and twinkling among the tree-trunks. Once, as they passed through a small clearing, I could see their whole force, and I judged that they were of about the same strength as my own, a half-squadron at the most. You who have heard some of my little adventures will give me credit for being quick in my decisions and prompt in carrying them out. But here I must confess I was in two minds. On the one hand, there was the chance of a fine cavalry skirmish with the English. 
On the other hand, there was my mission at the Abbey of Almaxal, which seemed already to be so much above my power. If I were to lose any of my men, it was certain that I should be unable to carry out my orders. I was sitting my horse with my chin in my gauntlet, looking across at the rippling gleams of light from the further wood, when suddenly one of these red-coated Englishmen rode out from the cover, pointing at me and breaking into a shrill whoop and halloa, as if I had been a fox. Three others joined him, and one who was a bugler sounded a call, which brought the whole of them into the open. They were, as I had thought, a half-squadron, and they formed a double line, with a front of twenty-five, their officer the one who had whooped at me at their head. For my own part, I had instantly brought my own troopers into the same formation, so that there we were, hussars and dragoons, with only two hundred yards of grassy sward between us. They carried themselves well, those red-coated troopers with their silver helmets, their high white plumes, and their long gleaming swords, while on the other hand I am sure that they would acknowledge that they had never looked upon finer light horsemen than the fifty hussars of Conflan who were facing them. They were heavier, it is true, and they may have seemed the smarter, for Wellington used to make them burnish their metalwork, which was not usual among us. On the other hand, it is well known that the English tunics were too tight for the sword-arm, which gave our men an advantage. As to bravery, foolish, inexperienced people of every nation always think that their own soldiers are braver than any others. There is no nation in the world which does not entertain this idea, but when one has seen as much as I have done, one understands that there is no very marked difference, and that although nations differ very much in discipline, they are all equally brave, except that the French have rather more courage than the rest. Well, the cork was drawn and the glasses ready, when suddenly the English officer raised his sword to me, as if in a challenge, and cantered his horse across the grassland. My word, there is no finer sight upon earth than that of a gallant man upon a gallant steed. I could have halted there, just to watch him as he came with such careless grace, his sabre down by his horse's shoulder, his head thrown back, his white plume tossing, youth and strength and courage, with the violet evening sky above and the oak trees behind. But it was not for me to stand and stare. Etienne Gerard may have his fault, but, my faith, he was never accused of being backward in taking his own part. The old horse, Rataplan, knew me so well that he had started off before ever I gave the first shake to the bridle. There are two things in this world that I am very slow to forget. The face of a pretty woman and the legs of a fine horse. Well, as we drew together, I kept on saying, Where have I seen those great rowan shoulders? Where have I seen that dainty fetlock? Then suddenly I remembered and as I looked up at the reckless eyes and the challenging smile, whom should I recognize but the man who had saved me from the brigands and played me for my freedom, he whose correct title was Milor the On Sir Russell Bart. Bart! I shouted. End of part one of chapter five.